Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 175 of Yoga Land. Jason's here, Ginger's here, I'm here. We're going to talk about yoga today. Yep. We're specifically going to talk about getting into a clear headspace before you go and teach. And I wonder if you could start by talking about why this came up for you as a topic. You know, in the last conversation that we had, we talked a lot about just the discomfort in class of not connecting, not just feeling like you're not connecting to your own thoughts clearly or your own body or your students who are present in the room. And so one of the most important things to do is just to spend a little bit of time to ready yourself before class. And I also want to acknowledge that doing so is sometimes really difficult. You know, the majority of yoga teachers, they're running from place to place to place. You know, most yoga teachers' schedules are super inefficient because they're not working for many hours in a row in their job. They're kind of doing 90 minutes here and then going somewhere else for 90 minutes and then a two-hour break at the cafe and then one more class or a private. And so I always felt kind of harried, you know, when I was teaching, I was teaching, God, a lot of classes, at least 15 public classes and a bunch of privates a week for many years. And I started to realize that this was a challenge for me is just kind of settling into a mental headspace and not carrying that scattered, fragmented feeling of running from place to place inside. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of how your ideas for prepping before class. Yeah. They're the things that I've always done, right? You know what I used to do? What? Like 10 burpees. <laughs> I've never seen you do a burpee. I, I would do a burpee. I'm not denying that you could do a burpee. Oh, you are in trouble. I'm den- I- I'm questioning whether or not you would would do one. No, I I completely said that for comedic value because I know um, it make you laugh. You know, a bunch of my students locally, especially uh, she's not so much of a student anymore, but Laurel who runs Love Story. Uh-huh. She always says, and some of these teachers always say that if they need to do some massive fundraiser, they're going to hire me to do a kirtan and that everyone would pay a lot of money to see me do a kirtan. Maybe you can be doing burpees while I'm doing a kirtan. That sounds great. That sounds great. It'll be like the most off-key kirtan you've ever heard. Oh, God. Arrhythmic off-key kirtan. And then it'll be like the saddest burpees you've ever seen. (laughs) Like a squat, a middle-aged lady. Yes. So... Going back to preparing for class, the first thing I do is acknowledge that sometimes I'm not prepared for class. You know, I'm running from place to place to place, but you have to have a couple of strategies. And I have a couple of strategies to just ground yourself relatively quickly and get ready to do your thing. Okay. So I think kind of the first one in some ways is just to remember to be a good host there are plenty of times that I will swan into the room and say, okay, everyone, we're going to focus on blah, 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 blah. I don't think that that's a problem, but I always, especially if I have a couple of students in that room that I know pretty well or one of my like actual friends is in class, I try to take a few moments or maybe even a couple of minutes, just like say hi, to just like get in one small brief little conversation with a student. There are a lot of studios Most teachers hate this, but there are a lot of studios that have their teachers check their students in. 
And I understand why some teachers don't like this. Yeah, that would stress me out. But I actually think it can be really helpful on a lot of levels. One is you're having that little hosting moment where, you know, you're not necessarily like giving everyone a hot towel and a cup of tea, but (laughs) you know what I mean? You're, you're, you're connecting to them. You're relating to them. And I think that breaks down some of the, some of the reality or some of the perceptions of the yoga room as being, can be kind of a patriarchal experience of, Mm. you know what I mean? Of like, you have the teacher who's the correct person. And then you have the people who come to learn and, and sort of listen to that teacher's whims. So when the teacher just takes a few social moments or connects or even just makes eye contact or something as simple as introducing yourself to someone you don't know and thanking them for coming to class. That's a really nice thing to do. You know, it's just one of these things that can, that really can anchor you and create kind of that limbic resonance of knowing like, okay, you're going to relate to people now for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that different people have different struggles my struggle, and I was kind of talking about this in the last episode, is sometimes being concise and relating to the people around me. But those are really important attributes as a teacher. <laughs> so sweet. It's good that you have the self-awareness. Yeah, of course. So doing those things to kind of be like a nice host and to engage with people a little bit can help get you in that space where you're just you were you starting to get off the bus or out of the car, off the podcast, and into your zone of communication with people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also kind of just like establishing the tone of the space, which is nice. Yeah. <clears throat> nice yeah, thing to do. Totally. Yeah. So another thing that comes up for me is to actually take a moment to observe your body, your breath, and your mood. And to be honest about it, and and I'm not saying to be transparent about it. You don't want to be like, hi, everyone. I'm achy, tired, grumpy. <laughs> and, you know. And in my like, dog just barfed. Yeah. You and, know, and I'm in, in total malaise. So yeah. sit down and I'm going to be quiet for yeah. a while. But it's important to take a moment and re- to reflect on what you're bringing to class. Because you are probably not a perfectly empty vessel, you know. And especially if you've been running from place to place, you're going to have a tone, you're going to have a mood, your body's going to be a particular way. And you want to be aware of that so that you can relate to it. And especially if you're having a hard day or you're feeling frenetic to kind of realize that you need to regulate that. You may need some strategies to actually regulate that. One of the ways a lot of teachers do this is by starting class with a little bit of quiet seated meditation. This can be helpful because it gives you a little bit of quiet space too, to have some filter or some buffer. For me personally, I don't usually use that strategy, although I'm totally supportive of it. The reason that I don't is I prefer seated meditation at the end of class to the beginning of class. I teach a pretty strong movement-based class, and I feel like the majority of my students are coming from a sedentary place. So I want to move them first. So what I do in that situation is I'll say, okay, everyone, I want you to take down dog for a minute or two. I'm going to be quiet. You just settle into your body. 
So it's, it's kind of the same function, but I provide a more active posture. I would say one more thing that I do is, even though in the first 10 minutes of a vinyasa class, I'm starting to lay out some of the technique that we're going to develop, I do try to be verbally concise and sparing in those first 10 minutes. I try to restrain what I think are my own personal biggest challenges mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as a teacher. And I and I just try to like... So I you're tr- saying that like for you, sometimes you overcompensate by over-talking. Yeah. And so that doesn't necessarily connect you more with people. That just gets you in your head and you're just talking, 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 talking. Yeah. And filibustering I, is what you've called it. Filibustering. So what you try to do instead is calm yourself down a little bit, be a little more sparing and connect with what's actually happening in the room. Correct. Okay. I feel like, again, it's so hard to know other people's experience, mm-hmm. right? I, I don't want to be project too much, but except for in the context of a teacher training, like an intensive training, you know, by several days in, I'm kind of settled in and I'm kind of tired, to be honest. <laughs> but in most drop-in <laughs> classes or workshops, I'm more likely to feel a little frenetic on the inside, right? I have a little adrenaline. I've been getting to class. I'm in San Francisco. I'm having to park. And so I, I feel like that's probably pretty common for teachers is we're a little bit tired and wired a lot. Uh, because we have that natural adrenaline of being in front of people. It's not that it's a performance, but you're in front of people. You're gonna have some, you're gonna have some chemistry going, right? So I find those first ten minutes are a way where I often need to intentionally slow down, be more sparing, not overcomplicate things, and not overtalk, so that I can energetically settle into class. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think there might be some people with some personality types out there that need to wake up a little bit. Right. That would be me probably. Yeah. I would, because I, you know, my fight or flight goes more into like shutdown. Right. And inability to communicate. So what? I just see you like laying face down. <laughs> <laughs> face down with my head to the side, my arms by my sides. Yeah. That would be me. No. But yeah, I get, I can get lost in silence sometimes. So I think this brings up a related point, which is, look, as yoga teachers, our responsibility is to our students. And we have to take care of them, see them, and teach them. And as a yoga teacher, yoga class is our work environment. You know, like, it's not just the students that's in the room. I'm working in the room. Mm-hmm. So I need to figure out the best strategies for me to do my job as well as I can do my job. Whether it's a moment of seated meditation, whether it's a little bit of movement, like whatever it is as a teacher that helps you ground in and do your job is something that you should do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's a long class. Yeah. You know, it's 60 minutes or 90 minutes. Like that's a long time to focus and guide and relate to people. It mm-hmm. really is. I would say, especially for new teachers, but I'd say it's always the case. Sure. So whatever strategies to settle in, and I'll give you one more, which is sometimes I'll do the first couple of poses with people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, because anchoring myself into my own physicality is a way that helps me kind of de-escalate racing thoughts or anxiety or whatever it is that I'm having to manage. So even though I don't practice with my students, if doing the first 
three or four poses with them feels good in my body and helps me focus and settle in, a hundred percent, I'm going to do that. And I give that as a really strong recommendation, especially to newer teachers, you know, because a newer teacher, if you're stuck, if you're freezing up, if those words aren't flowing, you have to do something to connect to your own body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You Absolutely. Know? So you just have to be pragmatic on all these things. You know, I, I think so often as yoga teachers, for whatever bizarre set of reasons, we just feel like we should be magically and always present and perfect for everyone. And it's just, it's just not going to happen. You got to take care of yourself in that room so that you can engage best with your students. Yeah, you have to kind of, sometimes you might have to coax yourself to get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have two more kind of large topics of the the topic of kind of settling in and getting ready for class. This to me is ridiculously obvious, but it's super easy to overlook, which is focus in class on what you've been practicing lately. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's so obvious, but it's really easy to overlook The more you are talking and leading from a place of experience and a place of embodiment, the more comfortable you're going to be and the more authentic and skillfully you're going to connect to a group of students. Yeah. You know, there are some possible risks of only teaching what you practice. I'll give you an example of mine. I don't do many seated forward bends. There's a lot of reasons that that is the case. So what that means is sometimes I overly omit seated forward bends in my classes, Mm -hmm. right? So I have to be aware of that. I have to be aware that there's some downsides. But focusing on the stuff that I feel physically connected to and that I'm like right now into is super, super, super helpful. We won't go too much into it, but I did this post about chaturanga and technique and chaturanga is always, it's always a complicated thing to discuss. It's something that people have very strong feelings about, right? And there's a couple people that commented that have very strong feelings that are different than my feelings. What I want to get to is I actually am certain that those people that have strong feelings, even though they're technically in contrast to mine, will be good, passionate teachers because they care so much about the thing. Now, whether or not I agree with the technique is is not the point. It's that like when you're really into something and you really care about that thing and you're really passionate about that thing, you might become an ideologue and you might be wrong. I'm not saying that's the case in this situation, but the more you really care and feel strongly about something, the easier it is to really teach that thing and to relate to that thing, you know? And so you want to be active in your practice. You want to be connecting to your body and engaging with your practice in such a way that that you look forward to helping other people work with themselves. Yeah. It reminds me of writing and producing content, actually, because I think there's the old expression, write what you know. And people respond when you are writing from what's happening for you and from an authentic place. But so often, if you you write from an authentic place and something does really well, you might find yourself the next time going, well, what what does the audience want now? Like what, it's like you you start to feel like you have to perform in your writing. And so 
always coming back to just what feels real to you and what you're working with. So you are a writer, you're mm-hmm. an editor, you've mm-hmm. been both for a long time. As your amazing husband, I have watched you go through different phases as a reader. I've watched you go through phases as a reader where you just kind of need space from being a reader oh, and yeah. you're not reading that much. Uh-huh. And then you go through other phases where like you're dug in and you're really into it. I understand both of those phases, but the question I want to get to is, do you find that when you are in a place where you're really wanting to read, that that comes out in your writing? Like that, that inspires you to write more or are those things not re- really related to each other? No, I think the thing that you might, what you might not see is that <clears throat> there's a difference for me between, you're talking about reading for pleasure. Yes, right? I am. I yeah. go through ins and outs of reading for pleasure. Yeah. And when I'm on and out with reading for pleasure, it's because I'm reading so much for work. Right. And that has always been the case for me. I spend an inordinate amount of time in my days reading So sometimes I just need a break from that at night and I don't, it's not at all an escape for me. So I get inspiration from all different kinds of things. Like going to see Maria Bamford last night, I went to see one of my favorite comedians. That's inspiration. Sure, sure, sure. I'm the same way. Mm -hmm. I draw a lot of inspiration from, from different sources. And in contrast to what I'm saying, sometimes I need a little space from my primary discipline. Yeah. You know, or everything starts to feel like work. Exactly. You know? I actually have one more thing that I want to add, but I just thought of something that I don't already have on my list. Okay. Which is sometimes as a yoga teacher, you just have to have a really good class in your back pocket because sometimes you are going to show up and despite your best interest and practice and plan, you are just gasping for life. You are just mentally and emotionally not there. And in that situation, you want to have like an old, steady, reliable thing. For me, that's outer hip opening sequences. Hmm. That isn't to say that every time I'm teaching an outer hip opening sequence, I'm like dying inside and I'm only doing this because it's all I can muster. But I know that for me, it's really easy to do do outer hip opening sequences because there's so much to draw on and also pretty much across different levels it's something that students crave yeah that's true right it's it's an e- it's an easy sell you know what i mean it's probably like the tried and true dish on certain yeah absolutely on certain <laughs> menus <laughs> right, right right and the chef i can just see the chef like oh my god another one of these another, things another uh I don't know. Whatever it is. Pasta Pomodoro. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like it. sometimes you just have to have that because ultimately it's not about you. It's about the experience of the student. And if you, for any number of reasons, just aren't really in the place where you can make a connection and you're like there, then you have to be able to kind of rely on something that that you really trust and that is is tried and true. I have a, a few of those. Yeah, that's a good, that's, that's yeah. a good thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then really kind of the last one in settling in is to have a plan, even if you decide to deviate from that plan. Okay. So I'm going to give you an example. I'll, I'll talk that out, right? 
when I teach sequencing, which I do a ton, both in certain three-day programs and also in all my trainings, it's like, it's the linchpin, I think, of in so many ways what I teach in trainings. There's a difference between going with a muse, going with a whim, kind of going with what's happening in the room and never having a plan in the first place, right? So I am all for having a plan and throwing it under the bus. Like being responsive. To totally. Yeah. Being responsive to what's happening and being responsive to like, you just might catch something interesting and you want to go with that thing. So I feel like when people don't have a plan of some poses they want to emphasize or some philosophical precepts they want to emphasize or some regions of the body they want to develop, and when they don't have a sequencing structure, that 90 minutes can start to be a lot of randomness, right? And in that randomness, I will tell you as a teacher, if I start to feel like I don't know what direction I'm steering this ship, I get very uncomfortable. That doesn't mean I don't respond and make changes, but if I respond and make changes by ditching my plan, it's because I've decided that there's something better to follow. But that's very different than having nothing to follow in the first place. You know, and so the more that you have a plan for a week or two weeks or a month or some some points to anchor your teaching, it doesn't even have to be the exact same sequence, but some real north stars to emphasize. If you don't have those things, you're you're much less likely to feel prepared when it's actually time to do your job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's coming from someone that you know I never used to have a plan. Never, 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 never. Because in some ways, planning for it gave me more anxiety. Huh. So sort of, right, you know that I've dealt with insomnia, right? I'm going to say this, knocking on all wood, dealt with insomnia. You know, it's not something that I've really struggled with over the last couple of years, but I struggled with it for a long, long time. And if I thought too much about it, yes. if I prepared too much for it, if I w- if I tried to be too good, like, okay, you got to turn the TV off because the blue light's going to drive you crazy <laughs> and you have to stop. Actually, all of those things in some ways would, f- even though they were good sleep hygiene, they would feed into my anxiety and my yeah. neurosis. Yeah, I can see that. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't do that. I'm saying that that's what's coming up for me if I thought about planning as I thought about like, oh my God, that's another thing I have to do, blah, blah, blah. But now I just see if I spent a little bit of time anchoring into what I want to teach well in advance, like not when I'm walking into the classroom, but like well in advance, then I don't really question myself. You know, I don't really question myself And I don't really get into the game of what am I doing and why am I doing this? And oh, what was me? Yeah. And I think when when you're prepared and you go in and you teach what you've prepared, as you said, being a little bit responsive to what's happening, then you can kind of gauge, did that work? What worked? What didn't work? Yeah. You know, you, you have a clear process for preparing for the next time or the next month or whatever it is, instead of like, throwing something at the wall and seeing if it sticks. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So those are all the things. I mean, those are really all the things. And 
again, I just want to reiterate that these are all strategies to manage the reality that most of us aren't going to be perfectly mentally, emotionally, and physically prepared for every class all the time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? These are the things that we can really do, most of them on the fly, Mm -hmm. to ground ourselves and to anchor ourselves and to make sure that that we're not winging it. And if we are winging it, it's because we just kind of get inspired to make a change in the flow. Right. You know, we decide like, oh no, I was going down this path and now I see this one open up and I'm going to, I'm going to take this new path that I didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. I would say that happens for me frequently. I like as planned and structured and methodical as I am, part of my methodical approach includes following options that present themselves to you in the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. I mean, I also sometimes see you doing your air punches before class, but we don't have to talk about that. My air punches, my air chokes, my air sweeps. (laughs) You put your fanny pack on. No, I only wear my fanny pack when I'm traveling. Oh, do you not wear it to the jujitsu studio? (laughs) No. No, because I don't really need to. So yeah, that's like a whole thing within that culture. I know. So you're not deserving yet of wearing your- No, it's not that I'm not deserving. It's that- I have a whole like poseritis fear. Sure, sure, sure. Because sure, I grew sure. up skateboarding and in, yeah, and in yeah. the world of punk rock. So yeah. like anything that just is too, smacks too much of of like an ostentatious effort to belong. Sure, sure, sure. Feels <laughs> really feels really uncomfortable to me. It's very Midwestern. <laughs> but just I keep definitely keep it low key. Keep it low yeah, key. Yeah, I absolutely wear a fanny pack when I'm at the airport. Right. Heck yeah. Yeah. How could I have ever not? Oh my gosh, me too. I don't know how I survived like my daughter's babyhood. My wallet, my credit card, my phone, my wallet size photos of you. (laughs) Oh, I don't have those, but. (laughs) I love that laugh about that. That's good. Um, Yeah, they're all right there. You just. It's my heart's pack. And you know what? I want to make something clear. I wear my fanny pack on my waist. I'm not an over-the-shoulder kind of fanny pack guy. Okay. I think it's unacceptable for a man to do that. I'm not going to go there. God. Just- Look, if you're going to wear a fanny pack, wear it on the fanny with pride. Own it. You wear it on the back? No. That's the fanny. Not in Britain. Oh. That's a whole thing. (laughs) You are creepy. I'm not creepy. That's why I try to say just wear it on the waist. (laughs) Can you tell the audience I'm not creepy? You're not creepy, but I think it's perfectly okay to wear it over the shoulder regardless of your gender identification, period, the end. Wait a second. I do too. Okay. I just got excited. Yeah. (laughs) So exciting. All right, Jason. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks as always for listening. I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 175. I can't believe I'm edging ever closer to episode 200. There is also a new blog post, or I should say another blog post that I will link to that relates to this episode on the show notes page. So go check it out. And if you haven't seen our new website, you will get to see our newly designed website. We're just getting better and better or trying anyway over time. If you enjoy the podcast, it's always so appreciated when you leave a nice rating and review on iTunes or when you just share it on social media, share it with friends, share it with family. We appreciate you so much. And until next week, enjoy your practice.